0: I love having kids in the service with us, and in fact, one of my favorite classes because my daughter's in that class is Base Camp or Club Fifty Six. If you are in that class, if you are fifth and sixth graders, can I see your hand or give me a woo woo? Oh, that's pretty. That's pretty low. You guys can do better than that. All right, we got some fifth and sixth graders in here. One of the things that Jason loves to do with the fifth and sixth grade class is called a sword drill, where he will give them a verse and chapter from the Bible and. Then he'll get them ready and say, go, and they have to go and find it. The first person to find it uh, stands up and reads it and gets a prize. It is a very cool way for the 5th and 6th graders to get more familiar with the Bible. So we're going to do that today, which is really cool. So 5th and 6th graders, grab your Bible. Parents or adults, you can join in. We'll see how well you do. Grab your Bible. We're going to see if we can do a sword drill today. All right, here is the chapter, book, and verse You're going to find Zechariah chapter 3. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. I haven't said go yet. Hold hold on. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4. Ready? Go. First person to find it, stand up and let me know that you, oh, Jason, super fast. I would (laughs) expect that from you. Followed by Maddie. Who wants to read it? Maddie, you want to read it? Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4 says what? Well done. Thank you, Maddie. not going to lie. That was a really special moment for me. (laughs) That is uh, a great verse in the Bible. It's actually the key verse of Zechariah's fourth vision, which is what we are going to be talking about today. But it also reminds me of a very interesting story from my childhood. As you know, I absolutely love the rain. I love watching the rain. I love listening to the rain. I love smelling the rain. I love being out in the rain. I love playing in the rain. Uh, This stems all the way back to when I was a kid. In fact, I remember one time my brother and I uh, were there at our house, we were homeschooled, Um, we were there, and we just had this torrential downpour. It was an amazing rain. Uh, We loved it so much. And then afterwards, we looked around on this campground where my parents were the directors, and we just saw puddles everywhere. So we did what you would normally think we would do. We ran outside and we started playing in all of the puddles. We were having the most phenomenal time. In fact, we would find every puddle we could and we would jump in it and splash around. Well, we made our our way to a particularly large and very muddy puddle. And we started playing in that and we had this unspecified game going on where we could see who could be covered the most with this mud. So we were splashing it on each other, rubbing on each other. We were completely covered in mud from head to toe. We had a blast. So we made our way back to our house, and we presented ourselves to our mom. And she took one look at us and was filled with laughter. She couldn't control herself. And then she asked us, where were you guys playing? And so we described where it was that we had found this very large and muddy puddle. And she, her laughter, turned from laughter to Surprise and shock and horror because she discovered that my brother and I were playing not in a puddle but in our waste water pond. <laughs> and we were covered not with mud but with, well, you get the idea. We were covered and she could not get us to the bath fast enough. And in fact, I, I don't know if our clothes ever made it back to our dressers after that, but they were gone. I cannot tell you how good it felt. To be washed clean from all of that, well, stuff that was there all over us, and it was gone. That story is very familiar uh, to me, but it's also very connected to this passage that we're going to be looking at today. Now, this filth that we had was all external. We were covered from head to toe with filth. But it was external, and it could be washed off with a, a good bath. But we are going to discover that there is a different kind of filth. Zechariah is going to show it to us. That is far deeper inside, far more destructive, and nearly impossible to get rid of. Zechariah has, up to this point, given us three visions. Those first three visions are of Zechariah being taken to a high point around the city of Jerusalem, where he could see the original dimensions of the city. And he was given these visions of what God had planned for Israel's future how he was going to restore them, what the future was going to look like for the nation of Israel. The fourth and fifth visions that Zechariah is now going to get to are going to have him inside of the temple courts and have to do with God's relationship with the nation of Israel and their standing with him. Here in the fourth vision, we are presented with an incredibly interesting scene. We see Zechariah on the outskirts. He is now in the temple courts, but is greater than this. He's not just in the temple courts. He's in the heavenly courtroom. And there in the heavenly courtroom, he is there as the high priest representing the nation of Israel. The angel of the Lord is there representing God. And then to his right is Satan, the accuser. That word Satan actually is a transliteration of the word accuser. And he's right there hurling insults to God about Joshua. Joshua. That is the scene that we have. And in this moment, everything is going to change for Joshua and the people of Israel. The situation looks bleak at that moment. The city is in ruins. People have been deported and exiled. The nation has sinned so often and so much that destruction is both deserved and imminent. And yet, into this scene... God gives Zechariah a vision of what's coming. What he's going to do with all of the sin of the nation, of all the people. And it's going to be incredible. Let's read together what Zechariah sees and what God reveals. It says this in Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan... Or the accuser standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest. You and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his Fig tree. It's pretty easy to see that the question Zechariah is wrestling with in this vision is how can a morally impure, morally filthy people ever be made fit to stand in the presence of a holy God, much less to be ministers and priests before the Holy One who inhabits heaven? There's only one way and one way only. It is God who faithfully and mercifully Forgives sin. In other words, Zechariah phenomenally shares us with us today. Wants to display for the people of his day and for us living thousands of years later. That the only hope we have, our only hope for our past, present, and future is the cross of Christ. The only hope that we have for our past, present, and future is the cross of Christ, And today I want to show you from this vision of Zechariah that no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, or what's been done to you, we can have hope by pointing us to five essential facts for fallen and failing followers of Jesus. God, we ask that you would come and meet us here in this moment, that you would reveal to us your word, that you would show us. The truth from this word and may that truth consume us may it change us may we find in it something to rejoice over and live live out in our lives we pray this in your name amen we live in a day where the love of God seems to be questioned over and over again when doubt and confusion come or hard times hit People are tempted pretty naturally to assume that God doesn't love them or that God doesn't care about what's going on in their life. And I can imagine that in this time frame with Zechariah that the people of his day would feel the same thing. As refugees coming back from a foreign land, is God for me? Does God care? John Calvin wrote how difficult it must have been for all of these refugees who have been promised by God a future and a hope To see where is their redemption? Where is their redemption coming? When will it be? They were confused. And rightly so. Over the last few weeks, Pastor Kyle has been sharing with us the challenges that the people in this day were experiencing. They traveled back from Babylon, which was a five month journey. They came back to find the city of Jerusalem and the temple ruined and gone. More than that, they started to rebuild the temple but faced incredible opposition that made them stop the building. And then on top of all of that, they have most of their friends and family, the people, the rest of the people of Israel, refused to come back with them to Jerusalem. They stayed in their comfortable lives in Babylon. The situation looked very bleak to Zechariah. What was going on here? More than that, It seemed very difficult to believe that God could do anything through the situation, if not impossible. I mean, everyone was gone. The city was in ruins. The judgment of God was coming. Destruction was imminent. How could Israel ever be restored to what it was supposed to be like, what it was before, or what God had promised it to be? And with that, Zechariah presents to them and to us the first essential fact that we have to believe, and that's this. God's plan is bigger than our moment in time. God's plan is bigger than our moment in time. This is incredible, uh, and I, I hope that you see the beauty of this like I have. It is incredible to me. Okay, so in this passage, Zechariah starts it off by saying, here's Joshua, he's in the courtroom of heaven, he's being accused by Satan, the accuser. What God does next is incredible. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? This passage right here is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. In fact, I would love for you to go there in your Bible. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. The passage begins... With a passage, a verse that we know very well. It says this But God causes all things to work together for, try that again. God causes all things to work together for, for those who love God. Okay, that verse right there is amazing and is often quoted to people. Who are going through very difficult times. Hey, hang in there. God is going to cause all things to work together for good. Hang in there. Don't lose hope. It's going to be great. So that verse is there. But it is far more than an encouraging verse. There is far more weight to it. Why? Why does God cause all things to work together for good? For those that love him. The answers are in the last part of that verse. And then all the way down to verse 30. Listen to what Paul says. The end of verse 8 who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has promised to do good to those who love him because that is what he is determined to do for those he has called. This is an amazing passage because God has declared, decreed that all those who he has chosen who will come to him in faith, every single one of them will end up in glory with him. It is impossible to say that any situation that happens in our lives could end up in any other reality than good because we will end up in heaven with him. God causes all things to work together for good because that is what he has decreed to happen. So the point that Paul is making, the point that Zechariah is making is, it doesn't matter what the accusation is that Satan brings into our lives. It will not change what God has decreed or what God has declared will happen. He will fulfill all of his promises to them. So the situation they found themselves in, deported and exiled in a foreign land, opposition in full force, friends and family refusing to return back to Jerusalem. It is not outside of God's plan, but is perfectly placed within God's big plan because God's big plan is bigger than our moment in time. I think that the best way to describe this is, is how difficult it is to dis- to tell a child that what they are about to experience is not going to be fun. I remember when my daughter Madeline was really young, she uh, fell through a window and cut open her elbow. We had to take her to urgent care. I uh, actually might have been the emergency room. I can't remember exactly which one. They were there and they were preparing a shot for her because she was about to get stitches for her elbow. And I'm trying to explain to her, this is going to hurt, but it's going to make you feel better. You're going to be better. They're going to sew up your elbow so that it can heal. And the scar is going to be smaller than it would be if we just let it stay as it was. I had to describe to her that what you're about to experience, as hard and as difficult as it may be, it's going to be for your good. In the same sense, God is trying to tell us no matter what it is that we are going through, I have decreed it to happen. I have declared that it's going to happen. It's going to be part of my big plan. Whatever you go through, everything that happens in your life is part of God's plan. And because God's plan is good, everything that has happened to you and is happening to you will result in your good. This is an amazing truth. We can take whatever situation that we are in in the moment and realize This is part of God's plan. It's not outside of it. And no matter how hard it is, how difficult it is, it's going to be good in the end. And it leads right to the next point, which is so incredibly linked to it. Essential fact number two is this. God's acceptance of us is stronger than the accusations against us. God's acceptance of us is stronger than the accusations against us. This reality that Paul is presenting to us in Romans chapter 8, that God has chosen all of those who are going to come to him, and he has saved them, and he has put it into a plan that they will end up in glory, it leads to the next part of what Paul says, which is so amazing verses 31 through 37. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Because God loved us, because God chose us, because God has promised that one day we will be with him forever in glory. He has purpose. Nothing can change that. No accusations from Satan will ever change that. If God is for us, who can be against us? What does Satan think that he can do to stop God's plan? Nothing which culminates in, in Paul nearly shouting in verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In short, Satan's ca- accusations, they cannot stop what God has planned. Satan's slander cannot undo God's sovereign decree. It's the exact same thing that God tells Satan in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2. He rebukes him and reminds him why his accusations will not work because the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Because the Lord has chosen these people, nothing is going to work. Do you really think that God is confused about who it was that he chose. Satan's up there. He's like, hey, God, look at these people. These people are so bad. They're so sinful. Look at all the bad things they're doing. Look at all the bad things they're thinking. And God is like, hey, you think I was confused about who these people were when I chose them? I was not confused by who they were. I knew who they were when I chose them. God knows who each of us is when we responded in faith. Our sinfulness doesn't catch God by surprise. He knew about that well ahead of time. He is not saving the people of Israel because of their merit, their work, their worth. He is saving them because of his grace. He's saving them because of the work that would be accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. That is why the accusations of the enemy don't work. Because listen, friends, if we were saved by our own works, by our own worthiness, by our own merit, all Satan would have to do is roll up with this big list of of sins. Look at what they have done. Look at what they have said. Look at what they have thought about. We'd be toast. We wouldn't be able to stand in the presence of God because of our our sinfulness. But thankfully, that is not what we are secured by. We are secured not by our own merit, but by the saving work of God through Jesus Christ on the cross. Think about how encouraging this must have been to the people of Israel in this day. They had already known that they were being punished by God because of their disobedience and sin. And now here's a picture of them being covered from head to toe in filthiness, in sinfulness. And they have the accuser. Satan is right there pointing out all of the the sinful things that they have done. And God says, those accusations don't work because I have chosen them for myself. And their merit is not based on their works but on me and what I've done. You know, anytime one of my daughters hurts or says something or gets another one of my daughters upset, I can count the seconds before I know they're going to be right in front of me. And they're right in front of me, and they're telling me all the things that the other person did that is making them upset, right? They're going to tell me everything. One person is going to say, they did this, they did this, and this, and this. And the other person is going to say, no, you did this, you did this. and you. It's going to go back and forth, right? In the middle of that moment, you're going to have a bunch of emotions. You're going to have hurt. You're going to have anger. You're going to have guilt. You're going to have accusations flying all over the place. But you know what? In that moment, it doesn't matter what one daughter says to me. In fact, for for that case, it doesn't matter what anyone else says about my daughter. It will not change my relationship with her because I love my daughter. I have chosen to love my daughter, and she is in relationship with me and will always be in relationship with me. No accusation ever coming across to me about her will ever hold any weight because she is my daughter. In the same way, no accusations ever that Satan can throw at you or to God because of you will work because God has chosen you to be his. Satan will be there all the time and he's going to try to do two things. He's going to try to slander God to you. He's going to try to tell you that God doesn't care about what you're going through, that God doesn't love you, that your sin is too great for him to forgive. He doesn't even notice what you're, what's happening in your life right now. And at the same time, he's going to try to slander you to God, to tell God, look at this person, look at how bad they are, look at all the things that they've, they've been doing. I saw them do this even this morning. He'll try to slander you to God just like he did with Job. Just like he's doing here with Joshua, the high priest. Just like he tried to do with Peter, the apostle of Jesus. Just like he does with each and every one of us. Revelation 2.10 says that the accuser of our brethren always stands before God, accusing them day and night. The accuser's there, and he's slandering you to God and slandering God to you. Friends, I want you to rejoice in the truth that nothing will ever shake God's confidence in you. Nothing will ever change God's relationship with you. There's nothing that He can accuse you of, nothing He can say that will ever make God say, I'm done with you. To make you, make Him leave or abandon you. Nothing. But I want to say something here because I I hear truths like this and, and think, okay, So God stops all the accusations against us. Why don't I feel that? It's one thing to say, I believe that God has forgiven me. It's another thing to to feel delivered from the shame and the guilt of our past. A lot of times that is what consumes us, not this truth, the feelings of shame and guilt, which is the third essential truth that we have to believe. Not just that God's acceptance is stronger than the accusations against us, but God's forgiveness and grace is deeper than the depths of our guilt and shame. God's forgiveness and grace are deeper than the depths of our guilt and shame. You guys know what shame is, right? Shame is that, that feeling you get when you are stuck on a test and you cheat, you pick off somebody else's answers and you get caught by the teacher? Shame is that feeling you get when you look at some of the others in your class and they seem to be getting it more than you and that they look smarter than you, better than you. Shame is the voice that tells you that because you did this or that, your parents won't love you anymore or your parents won't ever trust you again because you did this. Shame is a voice that says you are not enough because of the way that you look, your height, your weight, your build, the color of your skin. Shame is a voice that says you're not enough because you're still single and you're not married with kids like everyone else because you have always been different than everyone else, struggled with fitting in. It's a voice that says you're not enough because of the things that you've done in your past or the things that you are struggling with right now, even today. Because of the things that other people have done to you that have made you feel dirty, And worthless. Shame is the voice that says you're not enough because of all the failure and rejection that you have faced in your life. That's all you've ever known. Because all of the expectations others, including God, have put on you or you have put on yourself, thinking you never measure up. Because somewhere along the line, you internalized damaging words spoken by a parent over you when you were a child. Shame is the voice that says maybe you internalize nothingness. The experience of being invisible, unheard, unnoticed. Neglected. Treated with apathy. Overlooked. Accumulating evidence that you don't matter. Shame can be painful. Shame can be devastating and crippling. Shame, for many people, can be life-consuming. And shame is what Joshua was feeling. As he stood there before God, clothed with filth from head to toe, and by the way, that word filth in that passage means human excrement, poop. Covered him. He was covered in shame, and he had the accuser standing right next to him, saying, look at this guy. You know the rules, Joshua. You're supposed to go clean yourself. You're supposed to take a bath. You're supposed to put on clean clothes. You're filthy. More than that, the filth of your heart is as filthy as your clothes. I know what you've thought about. I know what you've done. And he's accusing Joshua over and over again, and Joshua is swallowed up by shame because each of these accusations are true. He was unworthy to stand before God. And yet God addresses it in an amazing way. He looks at Satan and he looks at Joshua's condition and this is what he says in the verse that we started with. And the angel said to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Joshua didn't do anything. He's just standing there. He didn't offer a sacrifice. He's just standing there. But the Lord simply went to him, took off his filthy garments, and clothed him with new garments, garments set for a feast. The key phrase in this verse is, I have taken your iniquity away from you. This is a picture that's pointing forward to to Jesus. Back in the Old Testament, the people were saved because they were hoping for the time when they would be fully forgiven. For us living today, we look back at that time and we say, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and forgiving me. We praise Jesus for what he has done. Joshua is praising Jesus for what he had promised he would do. So we have this sinful but chosen priest being accused by Satan and and Jesus simply just steps in and takes his iniquity away and clothes him with righteousness. Puts on these new clothes. This is amazing. Takes off all these filthy clothes, puts on new ones. Now what are these clothes like? It doesn't say that they are just white or clean clothes. That would just mean innocence and righteousness. That's not all that is being captured here. Some of the translations say feastal garments. It's not just garments set for a party or or party clothes to symbolize joy over being forgiven. It's so much more than this. The word is filled with glory. He's clothed with glory clothes. Which means that not only is Joshua cleansed and forgiven, but that's eternal. That's going to never end. That because of his new clothes, he can stand before God in his presence Fully cleansed, glorified completely. That's the grounds for the gospel that we read about in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who can stand against us? Who condemns us? Christ Jesus is he who died, rather who was raised, who was seated at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. This guilt, this shame that we feel, that Satan so ominously tries to bring up over and over again, It has no weight. Because when God looks at us and he's saying, I don't know what you're looking at, Satan. I only see Jesus. I see Jesus' clothes wrapped in that person. I see perfection. I see white, innocent, cleansed people in front of me. I don't see accused, sinful people in front of me. See, friends, the only hope we have for our past present, and future is the cross of Christ. That's it. So why is it that there are so many of us that are here today who struggle with the debilitating effects of shame and guilt? Many of you are covered with this shame and guilt as well. We want to have confidence in our relationship with God But we're walking around with the shame of unworthiness as stains on our clothes. We try to come to worship God, but we have the guilt of all the sins we have done in our past and the ones we are doing today, staining our clothes. We try to go out, step out, and serve God, but we have the fear that we can't do it, that we're not good enough, that we don't have talents, we don't have abilities. We can never do anything for God as stains on our clothes. We try to overcome temptation in our lives And yet we have the times that we have failed over and over and over and over again, staining our clothes. We try to step in the truth that God has uniquely and purposely created us on purpose for a purpose. But we have the comparison with others, what they look like, act like, dress like, succeed like, staining our clothes. We try so many different ways to gain the approval of God, but we have the stains on our clothes. We try to find and walk in the plan that God has for us. But the words of others from our past, that you can't do it, you'll never amount to anything, you could never be anything, do anything as stains on our clothes. You try to be the mom that God has called you to be. And yet you have the incapacitating guilt in the comparison of others that other moms are so much better than you. They're more creative, more fun, more connective than you are as stains on your clothes. You try to be the dad that God has called you to be, but you have this fear of unworthiness that you'll never measure up to the man that your dad was. Or you have this this continuing pursuit of trying to measure up to this image of a dad that you want to be to prove your dad wrong, that you can be a good dad, but there's stains on your clothes. We have all this incapacitating shame and guilt staining our clothes, and it's time that we finally just rise up and say, in the name of Jesus, I am loved, forgiven, washed, and cleansed. I am clean. I am clean. I'm forever clean. That's what we need in our lives. We are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. I'm not naive enough to think that. You can walk away today saying, oh man, that was so good. And I feel like I can just release my shame and guilt and then you wake up tomorrow morning and it's right there with you. The accusation still pounding at you from every side. We will have to deal with the haunting effects of shame and guilt in our lives. But what it's going to require for us to do is to wake up every day and to look the accuser in the face. And say, the Lord rebuke you. I have been loved, accepted, chosen, changed, saved, cleaned, and transformed by God. You will not have the last word in my life today or any other day. I choose to hold to the words of God. And then we dive deep into what God has said in his word. And we let that become the foundation for our life for that day. We talk with him throughout the day through prayer, sharing with him what we are experiencing, what we're going through. Which leads to the next essential fact in this vision. It's this. God's purpose is grander the ambitions and actions of our jobs or calling. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what has been done to you, God can and will use you. His purposes for your life are far more grand than you ever thought or imagined. I hope you see the beautiful scene here. We see the sinful man standing and trying to represent a sinful people. We have an adversary pointing all that out and trying to mess it all up. And the adversary would win if it were not for Jesus who steps in, rebukes Satan, takes away Joshua's Sin and then recommissions him to do the work he has called him to do. That's a wonderful reality, not just for the people of Zechariah's day, but for each and every one of us today. Joshua is recommissioned back to doing what God has called him to do. Zechariah says, Hey, don't forget to put the turban on his head. That's an important part of the priest's garments. In fact, the old rule said that when you put the garment or the, the turban on his head, it had the inscription that said, Holiness to the Lord. Dedicated, consecrated, set apart to be used by God. And here he gets it back, saying, you, Joshua, are now able to go and do what I've called you to do. Joshua, if you just remain faithful to me, if you follow my commands, if you reject anything that will take away or compromise your commitment to me, if you follow the rituals and the the rules that I have set down for the priests, I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to give you rule over the courts. And two, I'm going to give you access in my heavenly courtroom. Back before this time, the priests were not given a lot of responsibilities outside of the temple. But at this moment, what God is saying is, I'm going to elevate your position far bigger than what you thought. You're not just going to be setting out bread and making sacrifices and lighting incense. I have something greater for you. You're going to be in charge of all the things that go on in the court system and in the priestly duties. But more than that, I'm going to give you access to my heavenly courts, my presence with me where the angels are. Far grander than Joshua ever envisioned. For those of us today, it's a similar call to us. Our sins have been taken away and we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Now we, too, have direct access to God. We don't need anyone to come in. We don't need someone to stand in between us, mediate ourselves with God. We can have direct access to him. We get to be in the presence of God. But it goes more than that. Do you guys look at what you do, your calling, your job, as just what you do? what Joshua thought, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do, but God elevated it. God elevates each of our callings. We're not just mechanics or teachers or nurses or law enforcement. We're not just doctors or pastors or homemakers or construction workers. We are ambassadors for God, displaying God to the world that doesn't know him. We are ministers of of God. We are partnering with him to promote justice, healing, compassion, kindness, and peace and humility, not just in our workplaces but in this world. We are workers for God, joining with him in stewarding and caring for the world he has placed us in. We are tools for God, accomplishing a purpose that he is uniquely gifted us to do. Friends, what you do in your life is not insignificant. No matter what you're doing, God has a bigger purpose for your life. Far bigger than your imagination. You have a crucial role in what God is accomplishing in this world. The last thing that Zechariah points out for us today is this. God's future peace is huger than the chaos and the incompleteness of the present. Joshua Joshua concludes his part in the story. Now Zechariah is about to show the people of Israel what it's going to be like to come. The future, when everything has changed, when everything is different, when God has returned and it's back to what it's supposed to be. This is going to be an amazing part of the story of God's plan. See, at that moment, everything looked bleak, impossible, broken. But a day was coming when all sin and guilt would be washed away in a single day. When the branch, the servant, Jesus would come. He would wipe sin out. Sin will be a thing of the past. Sorrow will be no more. Suffering will be abolished. And loneliness Forgotten. That's what it's saying here. Everyone will have their own fig tree and vine and invite friends to come to be there with him. This is hope. This is what filled Zechariah with confidence and resolve. This is what God has promised. Friends, this is the hope. One day is coming when all the things that we are struggling with in the midst of this fallen world will be done away with, it'll be gone. While we wrestle today living in a fallen world, that will not be the world that God has for his coming. While in this world we wrestle with the painful reality of death, while we wrestle in this world with what is going on in this moment, while we wrestle daily with the brokenness of our lives and the lives of those around us, while we wrestle all the time with the accusations that come at us left and right, there's coming a day when all of it will be gone. All of it will be will be gone. There's coming a day when God's future peace will be huger. Yes, that's a word, and yes, I used it. Huger than whatever chaos and incompleteness you may feel, and it's all because of the hope we have in the cross. Of Christ. It is all because of what Jesus has done for us. It is he who intervened. It is he who stepped into the brokenness and the simpleness of our lives and took all of our sin and our guilt and shame upon him on the cross and forgave it all, washed it all away. If there's one thing, if there's one thing that I would love for you to hold on to today, it's this. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, No matter what you've done and no matter what's been done to you, God is for you. And maybe you're here today and you don't know that for yourself yet by experience that you've never reached out in faith and trusted Jesus to save you. Would you call out to him today and say, today, God, I want you to be in my life. I want you to come and wash away the sin and the guilt and the shame that I feel If you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, but you are struggling to shut out all of the accusations from the adversary, shame and guilt are covering you from head to toe, remember that Jesus has washed you fully clean from all of your sin, all of your guilt, and there's not a single accusation that Satan can hurl against you that will change that. Let me close with a story. One of my favorite heroes of the faith, is Martin Luther. he's a reformer back in the 1500s. He once had a, a, well, there's a legend about him saying that he once was sleeping, and while he was dreaming, he imagined Satan coming to him. And when Satan came, he unveiled a list of sins that Luther had committed, and he started to go one by one through every sin that Luther had done in his life. And with each sin, Luther could feel the terror rising in his heart, in his emotions. And he finally got too much and he rose up and he jumped and he said, Satan, all these sins I have done and many more that only God knows. But I want you to write at the bottom of that list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses me from all sin. While that story may not be true, the truth behind it is, Whatever the shame, the guilt, the sin that you have, God's blood has cleansed you fully and completely. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood.